Hello, this is Patrick Ridgel, and I'm here once again with Transamerica Asset Management Chief Investment Officer Tom Wald. Today, we're going to be talking about the catastrophic economic numbers that have been caused by the COVID-19 pandemic and why, in the face of these horrendous economic reports, stocks have had an extremely strong run since hitting their lows back on March 23rd. Tom, welcome back. Thank you, Patrick. Nice to be back. Good. Let's, let's jump right into this. The market has had a really strong bounce off of the late March lows since we last spoke to our listeners. Uh, that's right, Patrick. Just looking at the S&P 500, uh, which, as we know, had experienced the fastest 35% decline in that index's history between February 19th and March 23rd, uh, the S&P has since that time risen about 29% above those late March lows. Now, of course, remember, investment math is a little counterintuitive. A 29% move up after a 35% decline is still down about 16% from where we were on February 19th and down about Mm -hmm. 12% since the year started. But nonetheless, definitely quite a recovery rally we've seen in the last couple of months. And at the same time, we're hearing about some of the worst economic numbers ever. Well, uh, yeah, worst is right. Uh, Just to state the most obvious example, Last Friday, the government released the April unemployment report. And in terms of total jobs lost in the economy, it was not only the worst ever, but the worst by a factor of about 10. In aggregate, 20.5 million people lost their jobs in the month of April alone. In one month, one month, all of the job Mm. gains from 2000. Nine through 2019 were close to completely wiped out. It, it, it's still something I think most people are having trouble comprehending. I mean, up until last week, the largest number of jobs losses ever in the history of our country mm-hmm. had been in September of 1945, when, of course, pretty much the entire military came home from World War II and were discharged. But even that was only 2 million. Yeah. Uh, so with this universal shutdown of our economy that began in March or what's now being dubbed as the great lockdown, even that anomalous job report of 75 years ago has been shattered in the most negative ways. The The official unemployment rate for April came in just under 15%, but even that reflects statistical counts that probably didn't catch everyone out of work. So you know, I think the unemployment rate could challenge 20% next month. You know, mm-hmm. bear in mind, you know, this jobs report should not really have surprised anyone, but it is nonetheless quite stunning when you actually see or hear it in real time. And, and that's, that's just one number. We got more coming, right? Uh, that's right. I mean, they're all going to be ahead is shakingly miserable. Uh, retail sales, personal spending, ISM manufacturing and service, PMI. I mean, take your pick. Each one being released uh, could be its worst on record. And of course, this is all leading up to a second quarter GDP print at the end of June that will probably be somewhere around negative 30% on a year-over-year growth basis. And uh, corporate earnings that will probably be down about 25% or worse versus this time uh, last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, like we like we said last time, uh, this second quarter right now is expected to be the worst single quarter of economic contraction since the 1930s. And uh, halfway into it, 
it is certainly living up to that billing. And, and yet, on the day of this historically terrible jobs report, the Dow goes up 455 points and the market continues to move higher. How, how do investors make sense of that? Yes, it certainly sounds counterintuitive. So a couple of important points here. First, as we've said before, the market is the great discounter of future events. So the arrival of these horrendous second quarter economic numbers have been known for some time. And it was at the point that they were first being figured out back in February and March that the market had its historic sell-off. So these numbers are a known entity now, and the market is looking forward. Second, uh, we've had close to two months now where the market has been processing new information. So along these lines, you just published an article that's entitled Markets Rally as the Economy Tumbles, Four Reasons Why. I did. And those four reasons are? Uh, yeah. So these uh, four catalysts, uh, so to speak, uh, will probably continue to drive the markets looking forward. Uh, the first is, of course, the monetary stimulus from the Federal Reserve. The Fed's actions have really been unprecedented and unparalleled uh, since early March, mm -hmm. taking short-term rates back to zero, uh, reinstituting quantitative easing, or what's also known as large-scale open market purchases, uh, that will wind up perhaps doubling the $4 trillion of bonds they bought back during 2008 through 2014 in the aftermath of the financial crisis and also dramatically expanding the venue uh, of what they'll be buying. Uh, these efforts by the Fed uh, have restored a good bit of support and confidence to the credit markets and have provided liquidity for the equity markets. So it, it's been a big deal, and, and I think it will continue to be so, in my opinion. And the second catalyst would be the fiscal economic stimulus that came from Congress in late March? Uh, exactly. The Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act, or the CARES Act, as it's known, uh, originally $2.2 trillion comprised of uh, direct assistance, loans, and loan guarantees to large and small businesses, individuals, and families, municipalities, and health care providers, uh, with an additional $480 billion that was added in late April, mostly to the Small Business Paycheck Protection Program. And I think we'll be seeing more fiscal stimulus uh, later this year. In fact, just this past week, congressional Democrats put forward the blueprints of a new fiscal stimulus package, mm -hmm. uh, uh, which they've entitled Health and Economic Recovery Omnibus Emergency Solutions Act, or the HEROES Act, okay. uh, which they've tallied out at about an additional $3 trillion dollars. However, there, ha there have, have not yet been any negotiations with the Republican side of the aisle on this yet. So it's unlikely the composition of this potential package uh, would be passed as it's currently drafted. But the broader point here being we're probably going to be seeing more economic stimulus coming from Congress sooner rather than later. And my guess is uh, that could wind up being an additional uh, two to three trillion dollars in the months ahead. So these stimulus numbers just keep moving higher. Yeah, so there's a there's a combined impact between the fiscal and the monetary stimulus. Y yes, very good point. Uh, what these two catalysts have done, Patrick, in my opinion, the combined impact of this fiscal economic stimulus from Congress and monetary stimulus from the Fed is to take away 
at least in a lot of investors' minds, and mine too, that worst-case scenario the market was fearing in February and March. That fear of widespread and elongated financial despair at Great Depression-like levels with no little liquidity in the markets, uh, these stimulus efforts have, in my opinion, taken those worst of the worst off the table by providing mm -hmm. a potential bridge to an economic recovery in late this year or early next. And the prospect, the prospect uh -huh. that once a recovery is underway, uh, they could stick around for a while and be tailwinds for that recovery. So you would view these two catalysts, fiscal and monetary stimulus, as now in place and likely to continue being a friend of the markets? Uh, yes, very much so. Okay, and how about the other two? Okay, uh, so these are more evolving, but I think they've played uh, a key role in the market's recovery and will continue to, be, to do so. Uh, those being uh, improving medical data on the virus itself mm -hmm. and what looks to be at this point a first phase in reopening the economy. Yeah, of course, both in the news, like you said, a lot. Uh, let, let's start with the medical data. Why do you say it's improving? Well, first, let me you know sort of repeat the obvious to anyone who knows me, uh, which is that I am not and never have been a doctor or any other type of healthcare expert. Okay. I have no medical experience or insight, uh, but I have spent many years looking at numbers, and there are a lot of COVID-19 numbers to look at. Which ones jump out at you? Uh, let me give you one in particular. Total recovered cases to total reported cases on a country-by-country -country basis. Mm -hmm. Of the total number of known cases in a given country, how many are now recovered? When you get to high percentage numbers, say 70%, 80% or higher, this essentially can get countries to, quote-unquote, the other side of the virus okay. and present a stronger argument uh, to reopen their economies. For example, Germany, South Korea, uh, Austria, Israel, Ireland, Switzerland, all of these countries in that 70% or higher range on recoveries of total cases. These uh, are, are, the, are, are your best candidates to move forward on wider reopenings of the economy, in my opinion. Okay. And here in the, what about here in the U.S.? Okay. So we're, we're currently at 22%, but this rate of recoveries you know, has been moving higher at a pretty fast clip. A month ago, we were only at 8%. So it's more than doubled on a percentage basis, uh, while our fatality rate and serious case rate have remained fairly low and constant. And, and, and of course, I realize that any fatality rate is too high, and we don't ever want to lose sight of that. But my point here is that if fatalities stay in this 6% range and serious cases stay in this current 2% range, mm -hmm. as both have over the past month, uh, as recoveries have increased, then those recoveries have nowhere to go but up. Mm -hmm. And we could, we could be above 50% in the fall, which I think would be big in terms of future business reopenings and this would likely be quite favorably received by the markets. Again, you know, a non-medical guy here talking mm -hmm. numbers, about medical numbers, but that's how I see it. Total recoveries to total cases. Something to watch out for from here on out. Uh, definitely. And, and the final catalyst you say is the early phases of reopening parts of the economy? Uh, yes. So back on April 16th, the White House announced 
a phased in plan uh, for opening up, for reopening up uh, the economy basically in three phases. Mm -hmm. Uh, But they left the decisions on whether to implement those guidelines or any other reopening efforts up to the individual states. Uh, Since that time, 43 states, by our last count, have announced new plans to allow for business reopenings under, uh, you know, in some cases, pretty strict uh, social distancing uh, restrictions. Mm -hmm. Uh, Most of them pertaining to, uh, you know, restaurants, retail businesses, gyms, uh, other select non-essential businesses, recreational areas like parks and beaches, social gatherings, and on the, on the medical side, elective surgeries, which mm-hmm. uh, many of which were being put on hold. Uh, so these reopenings are also occurring alongside uh, relaxed uh, stay-at-home orders. And of course, all of this has been widely debated as the nation continues to weigh medical safety versus financial recovery. In attempting to balance uh, these two objectives, I, mean, I think the market has reacted well to the recent reopenings and will likely continue to do so. And as the trend of reopenings continues, it likely lends credence to the argument that this second quarter that we're in right now mm-hmm. could represent the depths of the contraction, potentially inferring the start of quarter over quarter growth in the second half of 2020. Uh, this would also likely be favorable, favorably received by the market, provided we do not see a resurgence of worsening virus data. So, so those are your four catalysts, monitoring fiscal economic stimulus, improving medical data on the virus, and phased-in safe reopenings of the economy. Yes, safe and, reopenings of the economy. Okay. And, and you see these catalysts in place for a while? Uh, yes, I, I really do. And in combination, I think they make for a pretty solid long-term profile for the markets, particularly in this extremely low interest rate environment. You know, and, and this pertains, you know, in my opinion, both for stocks and the corporate bond markets, where credit spreads on investment grade and high yield bonds have come down materially since late March as well. However, you know, it is very important to recognize that as we move toward an overall economic recovery, be it late this year or early next year or whenever it might be, there will still be continued uncertainties and ongoing volatility, mm-hmm. uh, and investors need to be aware of that. Mm-hmm. Regardless of these catalysts, you know, as I like to put it, this is still not a market environment for either faint hearts or short-term time horizons. Yeah. Well said. Now, Tommy, you also recently published an article going way back on the market and comparing this COVID-19-induced market sell-off to other similar or or at least somewhat similar environments. And I think you came up with some interesting conclusions. Uh, Yes. Uh, This COVID-19 market experience really has been a historic black swan, the likes of which few people, very, very few people uh, alive today can attest to. Uh, The phrase black swan is, of course, a market and financial term uh, officially defined as, quote unquote, an unpredictable and unforeseen event, typically one with extreme and severe consequences. Uh, this, of course, fits COVID-19 to a T. Yeah. Uh, so we looked back over the past hundred years or so to identify what we believe to be the other historical market black swans and what we might be able to infer from them. And, and we came up with six of them uh, dating back to the early 20th century. 
Okay. World War One and the Spanish flu pandemic. That was actually two overlapping uh, black swans in one period of time. The stock market crash of 1929. Early World War II in Europe uh, before the U.S. became involved in the war. Uh, the worst of stagflation, the combination of recession and inflation in 1981. 9-11 and the financial crisis of 2008. Uh, the low points in the market during these black swan events ranged from down 25% during the worst of stagflation to down 86% after the 1929 stock market crash. Mm. However, in all of these cases, after the so-called black swan event was resolved, the market was positive for the 10-year period to follow and on average saw a 13% annualized total return for the decades following the resolutions of these black swans, mm -hmm. which translates into about a 250% cumulative return for those following 10 years. So if you invested $10,000 at the conclusions of these other black swans, uh, you would have had an average of about $35,000 10 years later. So the lesson learned in this data and the look back at other historical black swans similar to COVID-19, is that history does seem to infer, and somewhat heavily infer, that even during the darkest of hours, it typically pays to stick around for the light. Yeah. That's, that's fascinating stuff, Tom. I guess, as you like to say, history doesn't necessarily repeat itself, but it often does rhyme. I do like to say that. Well, I think that about wraps up our time today. Um, I'd like to thank all the listeners out there for joining us. If you have any questions or comments or anything you'd like to share with us, please reach us at marketpulse at transamerica.com. That's marketpulse at transamerica.com. As always, Tom, thanks for your insights, and we'll be back with more to talk about next time. Uh, yes, we will. Thank you, Patrick. 251036. Investments are subject to market risk, including the loss of principal. Asset classes or investment strategies described may not be suitable for all investors. Past performance does not guarantee future results. Fixed income investing is subject to credit rate risk, interest rate risk, and inflation risk. Credit risk is the risk that the issuer of a bond won't meet their payments. Inflation risk is the risk that inflation could outpace a bond's interest income. Interest rate risk is the risk that fluctuations in interest rates will affect the price of a bond. Investing in floating rate loans may be subject to greater volatility and increased risks. Equities are subject to market risk, meaning that stock prices in general may decline over short or extended periods of time. Investments in global international markets involve risks not associated with U.S. markets, such as currency fluctuations, adverse social and political developments, and the relatively small size and lesser liquidity of some markets. These risks may be greater in emerging markets. Alternative investment strategies may include long, short, and market-neutral strategies. Bear market strategies, tactical strategies such as debt and or equity, foreign currency trading strategies, global real estate securities, commodities, and other non-traditional investments. The information included in this podcast should not be construed as investment advice or a recommendation for the purchase or sale of any security. This material contains general information only on investment matters. It should not be considered as a comprehensive statement on any matter and should not be relied upon as such. The information does not take into account any investor's investment objectives, particular needs, or financial situation. The value of any investment may fluctuate. This information has been developed by Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated and may incorporate third-party data, text, images, and other content to be deemed reliable. Comments and general market-related projections are based on information available at the time of writing and believed to be accurate, are for informational purposes only, are not intended as individual or specific advice, may not represent the opinions of the entire firm, and may not be relied upon for future investing. Investors are advised to consult with their investment professional about their specific financial needs and goals before making any investment decisions. Transamerica Asset Management, TAM, is the asset management business unit of Transamerica. TAM consists of Transamerica Funds, Transamerica Series Trust, and Transamerica Asset Management Incorporated, an SEC-registered investment advisor.